from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. My name is Sophia Besch and I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. You're listening to an audio recording from a recent CER event. If for some reason you can be there, you can catch up now. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this event at RUSI, organized by the Centre for European Reform and the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung. Uh, I'm going to moderate the first panel uh, in a minute, but just to say thank you very much to Felix Dane and his colleagues at KAS for supporting this project on plugging in the British. Thanks to, also to RUSI for hosting today. Um, I think the subject is very important and hasn't received as much enough attention in the British or continental media. The day after the referendum, I remember thinking, well, at least we'll have a very, very close security relationship post-Brexit, because nobody voted to leave because they were against the common foreign and security policy. It's a no-brainer. It's obvious. There'll be lots of nasty arguments about economics and trade and customs, but clearly we'll be really closely plugged in on foreign defense policy and justice and affairs. Well, obviously, I was a bit naive. It's turned out to be very difficult indeed, partly because we think in some ways differently. The EU is a rules-based legal order that cares understandably about its legal principles, while uh, the British believe they're a very pragmatic nation who can always find a way around legal principles. So it is proving quite difficult to plug the British in, at least on the justice and affairs side, but we're also going to talk about the uh, foreign policy and defence sides as well. Uh, if we don't get this right, if there's not a good deal on foreign defence and justice and affairs, our citizens will be less safe and Europe will be weaker strategically uh, and Britain will be moving off somewhere into the North Atlantic away from Europe, which I think is not in Britain's interests or Europe's interests either. We're going to start with justice and home affairs and my colleague Camino Mortero Martinez will outline some of the key findings in, the, in this report on justice and affairs, and then we'll uh, get into the panel discussion. Just to say, there is a hashtag suggested, hashtag plugging in Britain, plugging in Britain. Today's event is on the record. Thank you very much. Camino. Um, I hope um, you all have um, had your caffeine fixed this morning because we are going to kick off today by talking about justice and home affairs, which I don't think is the easiest part of it all. Um, as Charles said, I'm Camino Mortera. I'm responsible for the parts um, dealing with justice and home affairs on this report, and I'm also responsible for naming this panel Crime and Punishment. And when I did some weeks ago, Little did I know that it would turn out to be so accurate. And I'm saying this because I was in Vienna on Tuesday when Mr. Barnier made his infamous speech about security. And I am quoting him here when he said that some in the UK want to maintain all the benefits of the current relationship while leaving the EU regulatory, supervision and application framework. And they try to blame us for the consequences of their choice. Once again, we will not be drawn into this blame game. It would mean wasting time we do not have. Some, me included, believed that his words were quite harsh and that they were somehow a punishment for the crime that UK was committing by leaving the EU. Others, though, thought that that's precisely what the UK has done. It has voted to leave the EU without thinking of the consequences. And now, again, the words not mine the UK must rem remember that facts have consequences. Now, I think that um, this is an opening negotiating position. I think that he was harsh on purpose. 
um, and I will explain in a second why I thought that. Um, but I think that um, thanks to this speech, um, the just and homophores uh, part of things has gotten a boost in recent days. So I'm just going to give you a very short summary um, of the upgraded thinking that I have um, on, the, on the issue of the famous security treaty. Um, as you know, police and judicial cooperation is one of the few things which has not been agreed yet in the draft uh, withdrawal agreements, which goes against common uh, assumption that uh, security is going to be easier to negotiate than trade. The UK wants a bespoke agreement, something that's, um, going, that goes beyond anything that any other country has, whereas the European Union insists that whatever, whatever that means, it is not in offer because um, the UK cannot be better out than in. Um, as I was saying before, I think both are opening negotiating positions, which will evolve over time, <coughs> but time, as Mr. Barnier said, is a luxury none of us have. Um, both parties have agreed on three broad areas to negotiate, extradition, databases, and EU agencies, Europol and Eurojust. On extradition, the Commission has been very clear, and so have we for a long time, that the, U that the UK will not retain the European arrest warrant, and as such, it will have three options. One is to revert back to the Convention of the Council of Europe, as Switzerland does. The other one is to uh, negotiate bilateral agreements with the U27, as the US and Canada do. And the third one is to replicate um, the Norway-Iceland agreement, uh, which, as you know, is very similar to the European arrest warrant with some caveats, like, for example, um, member states are allowed not to extradite their own nationals. Now, I think this third um, option is the most realistic. It complies with both UK's red lines and the European Union's legal order, but the Commission seems to disagree. And they have offered the UK to stay, uh, to use the Convention uh, with some supplementary, complementary uh, things like time limits for extradition and also a complementary mutual, uh, mutual legal assistance treaty. And I think we are going to hear about why that's possibly not uh, the best option to pursue. When it comes to databases, and I know that Peter is going to be talking about this a little bit, um, there is no precedent for a non-Schengen, non-EU country to access Schengen databases. So at the moment, as we, as we stand, the UK is very likely not to retain direct access to things like the Schengen information system. Now, it can retain in, indirect access um, by asking countries, friendly countries, um, to run searches for it, but obviously this is not an ideal situation. Um, it will be easier to get a deal on PNR, a deal on other things like the PRUM databases and the likes. Finally, Europol. Uh, the UK should be able to get a good deal with Europol, as the, the United States do, sending liaison officers to Europol, also participating in project analysis, as we've heard Mr. Vanier saying last week. Uh, but it will not retain direct access to the Europol information system, and it will not have a seat on the management board. That's something that Barnier made very clear as well. Um, the problem, and the main problem, and that's what we say in the report, is that the UK's current red lines and its stated ambitions for security are incompatible. We've got uh, very little clarity on the ECJ, and I think there is very little way around having judicial oversight or the ECJ um, in, this, in this area, because we are talking about fundamental rights and criminal proceedings. And please disagree with me, um, panelists, uh, if, you, if you may, but I think some sort of um, oversight of the ECJ in this particular area 
is going to be uh, is going to happen and it's going to be easier to sell at home uh, because at the end of the day what Charles was saying nobody voted for Brexit to leave European police and judicial cooperation then the charter I think at the moment is a lost cause and I know that uh, some here think that that's a minor issue but as we saw Mr. Barnier saying the Commission thinks it is not um, it's actually something very important underpinning cooperation at the European Union level, so that is going to make it more difficult for the UK to get uh, some perks as well. And finally, data protection. Both parties agree that um, the UK should uh, follow EU data protection standards. They disagree on the how. Um, the Commission wants the UK to have a pure and simple adequacy decision with a guillotine clause um, uh, annually in the whole um, treaty in case it doesn't comply with it. The UK is trying to find other avenues, which I think should be possible if we look at what the US um, has with the European Union. Finally, on just a home affairs, like in many other areas of the Brexit conundrum, the solution is probably going to be a halfway house. I think a security treaty is still possible. Um, I think it could combine elements of different models of cooperation, but shaped in a different way, because at the end of the day, um, even if the UK cannot have more um, rights and fewer obligations than all the countries. None of the countries that we are talking about have ever been in the European Union before. Thanks. Thank you very much, Camille, for setting out some of the findings of, of the report. We'll go straight to our panellists now. So if Yvette, I'm asking Yvette to speak first, because sadly she has to leave at 10.30. So Yvette, give us seven minutes. As in your purchase, Chairman of the Commons Home Affairs Committee, how does this look to you? Thank you. Well, um, we'll just speak um, a bit, uh, draw on some of the, the evidence that we took on the Select Committee looking into security and policing cooperation and what the prospects might be and in the context of the, these latest speeches. We looked at the, obviously, the policing cooperation, criminal justice and information sharing and extradition, uh, the Europol, uh, the databases, the access to databases and the European arrest warrant. And I think from the beginning, it, it always appeared that you would have the warm words of commitment from politicians on all sides, from individual member states, from the UK government, from the Commission, that of course, as Charles said, while well, security cooperation is something that everybody wants to continue and everybody wants to be as close as possible uh, uh, post-Brexit, but we've always seen, I think from the start, three big risks to that happening. First of all, that it could become used as a bargaining tool in the negotiations. And there were signs of that in some of the Prime Minister's early speeches and the early letters to the Commission. Signs of it too, I think, in the tone of Michel Barnier's Vienna speech that somehow this is something that becomes part of the trade-offs in the negotiations. In the end, I still assume that nobody will want that to happen and nobody will want security and policing cooperation to be something that is traded off with other parts of the future partnership around trade or customs or whatever else we might be negotiating on. And in the end, everybody will see the benefits of this being a, self, a distinct part of the negotiations. However, it is still not clear and confirmed that that is where all sides are going to end up. And that should be... Um, a real concern to all of us um, because uh, I think there is no doubt that you know, people didn't vote for Brexit 
to become less safe. Nobody uh, across the rest of Europe wanted Brexit to somehow mean that more criminals get away with it or that uh, anybody should become less safe. And certainly senior police officers from all countries across Europe want and need that close cooperation to continue. So the first risk is that it gets sucked into the wider negotiations and be used as a chip in those negotiations. Second risk is rigidity of approach, again on both sides. And we obviously, we've raised concern about the UK government's approach to its red lines, particularly around the ECJ, but also some of the approach to things, for example, to the, obviously, the Charter of Fundamental Rights and also to things like the implementation of the GDPR and the exemption for immigration in the GDPR. That is the kind of thing that makes it harder to get a data adequacy agreement or whatever data sharing route we need to go through with the EU. Those sorts of things will make it harder. And I don't think that has been properly built into the UK's approach, the UK government's approach. So some rigidities on the UK side. There has been signs of the red line on the ECJ getting pinker about around uh, institutional membership, particularly around something uh, like um, policing cooperation or Europol and, and so on. But again, no real clarity yet about where things are going to end up. And then I think the, the Barnier speech again showed signs of rigidity around third country models that um, obviously as uh, everybody recognises there are rules-based approaches and there are things that will uh, constrain the way the EU operates but there are other things that actually frankly it's not convincing that they are genuine constraints on the way that the EU needs to operate in its relationship with the UK in future and I just give um, two uh, brief examples one which is the as part of the argument around the European arrest warrant, Michel Barnier seems to be arguing that somehow uh, the European arrest warrant was intrinsically linked to free movement. Now, clearly, if you have free movement, you want a European arrest warrant. That doesn't mean that if you have qualified free movement or you don't have free movement, you therefore can't have a European arrest warrant. Those things don't follow at all. So, again, some rigidities, I think, in terms on the EU side about the third country models that they're expecting this security partnership to fall into. And then thirdly, the third risk is even if we get through all of those things, so even if we get through the sort of political negotiating uh, process, even if we get through the, the rigidities and the starting point red lines, the risk that people just leave this too late and it is complicated. And that getting a kind of um, uh, an arrangement around extradition that deals with the fact that Germany and Slovakia, for example, have uh, own country bars on extraditing their own citizens and that Turtak, the uh, Slovakian who committed a vile rape and attack in Leeds and then returned to Slovakia, would not be able to be extradited if he's returned to his own country under the current constitu constitutional bar outside the European arrest warrant. So those sorts of serious cases, actually that is challenging to work out what is the new extradition arrangement that deals with those sorts of constitutional bars. There are equally some very complicated issues around the data sharing and data adequacy that will take time legally and constitutionally to work through. And so the third risk we've always felt is that nobody's talking about this enough. <laughs> Nobody 
is worrying about this enough. And many of the conversations I've had with senior police officers have been to say to them, you should be much more worried about this and you should be raising the profile of this if you want this to be sorted out in time. Because I think everybody should, will want, in the end, a good solution for this and that this should be solvable. But if it is left too late, if it is left too late to sort out the legal and constitutional issues, if it is left too late because the politicians' focus is all on something else, is all on the customs arrangements or you know, other important issues, but this is just assumed to be something that will solve itself because we have a shared interest, then we will actually have a huge problem later on and it will be too late to sort it out quickly. So the one upside of the Michel Barnier speech um, in Vienna is that actually it does raise the profile of this issue now and it does start people talking about it now, focusing on it, and I hope this will now get a much higher priority within the Home Office, within DEXU, and also that we will be able to have much stronger uh, discussions with the EU side and with individual member states in order to resolve this. Just a final thought that the, what the scale of the issue about this is some of this will be cases like Turtac and the um, victims not getting justice. Some of it will just be about the speed of sharing information that police officers need very rapidly in order to be able to catch criminals, but also in order to be able to bring cases to justice. If you have to ask several different people to get the information for you and you don't get direct access to that information, the potential for things to go wrong along the way or for serious delays to happen in cases rises very substantially. We heard repeatedly from senior police officers who told us quite how important that cross-border cooperation was and quite how important it was to the new and changing forms of crime, so many of which cross borders today. I think we should all be listening to those senior police officers. I don't think that populations, not just in the UK, but right across Europe, would forgive us if we don't. Thank you. Thank you very much, Yvette. And thanks for keeping to time. Um, Turn now to another chairman of a, another committee, but in a different parliament. Claude, you're chairman of the Libe Committee, which is sort of does JHA in the European Parliament. You've been in the European Parliament for a very long time. You have a lot of experience on these issues. Uh, how does it look from a, a Strasbourg perspective? Okay, thank you very much, Charles. And um, probably, yes, a very long time, but Sarah Ludford would uh, testify. It doesn't mean that people will always notice what we do. And... Uh, it was really good to hear what uh, Yvette just said, and uh, we're going to, I think we've tentatively been invited to, to give evidence to you, Yvette, and uh, Rob Wainwright and others. Um, and the more, the more we do that, the better. Um, I'm in a slightly um, kind of hybrid position. I'm the last British chair of a legislative committee. There is one, one other um, who's chairing the development committee, but, but as colleagues will know, we are legislating like crazy at the moment in the uh, GHA area, and that will continue next week in the council meeting. Um, so what I'm going to say is very much in line with what I've heard even up to this week in the Brexit Steering Group. Our committee is represented on the Brexit Steering Group, and uh, that's because of citizens' rights, but because of this area, which, as Yvette rightly said, um, has probably been neglected. If anyone saw the Parliament's resolution in March, of course nobody would have, um, they would have seen that on extradition and mutual legal assistance, we were warning then uh, that this would be a timeout scenario. Um, and the other thing about the Parliament is that it's pretty tight in with the Commission position. So the Brexit Steering Group on Monday um, gave 
the position which I'm going to give now, which is not pretty, um, but the added value I would also give you is what I believe may happen now, but also um, what the political scenario is. So to keep within my seven minutes and tell me when to stop, Charles, please, because obviously I'm in the European Parliament, I'll speak too long. Um, so I'll give two snapshots. Um, the Commission and the Barnier speech it was it a negotiating position? Is it too harsh? Is it not too harsh? Um, I think it's just a rules-based position of reality. Um, and I'm not sure how much room for manoeuvre is here. So when you, you see, the, the, for example, the, uh, the Jeremy Fleming um, intervention, the National Cyber Security Centre, all of these issues, what I'm, what I'm seeing is Britain has major assets, and no question of this, Britain has the added value in this area, and you'll discuss this in the security field. But the, as has as, um, um, been said by Camino, the rules-based issue is very important for the Commission. Now, what does that mean in reality? It means that for the very critical areas, such as the adequacy agreement versus the bespoke um, agreement on access to SIS and PRUM um, and the various databases, but beyond that, ECRIS, ETIAS, all the major areas where we want to have access to databases or share in the future, what that really means is that um, there is no question, in my view, uh, that the Commission is going to, to see a bespoke agreement at all. So we then are in the area of adequacy. And here, again, and, and Yvette and other MPs will have to grapple with this because we are clearly transposing GDPR and we are clearly transposing the so-called police directive but the problem is, in, in transposing this, we are already, as a, as a country will always do, not transposing it in such a way that uh, will we'll, we'll see us, uh, if I give you an example, the immigration ex exemption and many other issues, which Yvette, as, as in her committee, has also um, noticed, and of course the European U Union has noticed. And this requires an adequacy agreement, which will be quite tough. Now, when that happens, um, there is also a further analysis. And I want to mention this in my seven minutes because people need to be aware that throughout this process, and we will now be noticing this, both the Parliament and the Commission have been analysing Britain's uh, use of CIS. And we have been scrutinising it, of course. And that means that um, this issue of how much Britain puts in as, as to how much it takes out of the databases is analysed very carefully. And this issue, again, is not a, a, a great um, um, situation for the UK because in relation to the, the latest scrutiny, and we had the reports this week in the Brexit steering group, um, is one of, um, if I could just say, not Britain giving a huge amount and getting a little back. That's, I mean, I can go into more detail in questions, but for CIS and PRUM, that, that is the situation. And the level of non-implementation in relation to the PRUM is another um, problem for, for the UK. Now, the reason I mention this is because um, we'll have an adequacy agreement, but we're not in a situation where we can uh, survive all these cliches about we, we put in more and then we take out little from, from the databases. We are crucial for these databases, but we're not going to be in that situation. If I give you an example, um, some of the reports from uh, the Commission to the Brexit Steering Group on Monday talked about how we copy databases and so on. Now, this is not unusual, 
but it's not a good situation for us to be in. Um, so this is not going to be an easy situation. The second thing is, remember with ECRIS and the other um, databases, we will always have this adequacy um, issue. Now, um, th the second thing is, and, and Camino has written, I, mean, I feel that we should all just take 10 minutes and read this and then, and then just add a bit to it. So let me just add a bit. The problem for the European Union is that, um, and they make the, you make the point in, in, the, in the publication, is that where do we go from here? Do we use Britain's assets more so we have room for more manoeuvre? Or does the European Union hunker down? What you will see next week is more legislation coming from the European Union on the external border and on security. Um, Frontex will be strengthened. There's a whole package of measures coming next week. The leaked the leak documents are here. I can give you more information. So there'll be a big meeting of 14 member states on Sunday, then the council meeting next week. I mean, this is also political survival for the European Union, and security is the focus. And on crime, remember, there is a conflation here because issues of you know, money laundering and issues of, of tackling serious and organised crime is part of that hunkering down. So if you think I'm conflating security with crime, I'm not. I'm just explaining that the political direction will, will be this. Okay, to be positive for a moment, and Yvette was trying to be positive in the European arrest warrant, it's very difficult to do that. But the Commission is, again, hunkering down on the question of the Charter, the, the ECJ, and um, free movement, particularly in relation to the European arrest warrant. Now, there is a time problem on the European arrest warrant. I, I, I take what you say, Vet. We could um, make some movements on this if the ECJ is getting pinker. That's good news. Um, we are now realising the European arrest warrant is a damn good thing. And it was reformed. Sir Ludford uh, reformed it. We'll learn what Brits do in the European Union in time. Um, and, and what the most important thing is what's the alternative? The alternative is a long discussion for something that is hugely inferior. Now, the time issue is a big thing because we have, um, I mean, 2020 is the deadline. And again, I think this is something Yvette and others will have to look at in the House of Commons. What time scale do we have to get these extradition uh, treaties in place? So I'll give you two snapshots, the European arrest warrant, the adequacy agreement, not looking great. Where do we go from there to be positive? PNR is possibly a positive element. Uh, many uh, you know, agreements that, again, we negotiated uh, that have a British stamp on them, which I think could survive this kind of rules-based uh, situation. Um, of course, we have the assets we talked about, GCHQ, our intelligence services, National uh, Cyber Centre, but also what is happening in the Mediterranean, our uh, military and security assets. Of course, uh, Britain has a lot to give, and we have to be very aware that in any negotiation up to 2020, uh, anything can happen, and PNR is a good example of where we can uh, do something positive. But beware the rules-based system on data and databases. Beware free movement and the European arrest warrant. Um, and as for the other things, well, I don't want to depress anyone any further. Um, so I give those two snapshots. And um, we can discuss whether the Barney's pitching it too high or too low. But I would argue that he needs to pitch it and we need to wake up. Um, uh, because, um, as Charles said at the beginning, I don't think we should be... Uh, you know, we should treat this deadly seriously. Um, it is about our security, it's about crime, 
Um, it's about uh, the safety of the country, so it is not something that we should be glib about. And certainly from the Parliament side and the Commission side, I don't see any evidence of that, that Monday's meeting was not about that. What it was about was how we get round uh, this system and also what does the European Union do in the future about its own uh, law and its own uh, future so just finish on this point if next week you see in the council meeting which is going to be one of the most important council meetings uh, on this topic ever in the European Union's history you see a doubling or tripling of Frontex officers new legislation on the external border um, and movement on Dublin and all sorts of offshoring stuff, which I don't like, by the way. Um, this is going to add to the legislation in this area. 40% of all the legislation currently uh, in the European Union is in this area. Um, so the European Union is not going to say to Britain, um, we're going to make this your priority. The priority is their external border because of their political realities, Italy and so on. So this is, this is where the uh, political direction is going on security and indeed crime and other issues. So sorry to mention that, but uh, um, I think that's where it's going. And I'll finish. Okay. Claude, thanks very much indeed. I turn now to Peter Storr, who for many years was the Home Office's leading expert on the EU and uh, after the referendum went to be Mrs May's chief advisor on Europe, and he recently retired, but I know you still follow these matters very closely, Peter. Do give us your thoughts. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Charles. Um, and I think you started off by pointing out the potential clash between uh, what Claude described as the rules-based approach which the Commission is taking and uh, the British uh, practical approach to uh, these issues. And um, this has always been the case uh, during UK uh, membership. Um, there's an old story um, from the early days of the European uh, community before the um, interpretation service became as proficient as it is now, where a, um, a typically British practical proposal uh, was followed by um, a, uh, a French intervention, which sadly was translated as... Um, we have had enough of Anglo-Saxon pragmatism. Now is the time for Norman wisdom. <laughs> um, now, we won't have as much Norman wisdom as uh, rules-based uh, approach as we, as we enter into uh, this particular negotiation. So I welcome the uh, CER paper on uh, this important issue. Um, the starting point that this uh, is going to be no easier than the rest of the negotiation, I think, has been proved by... Uh, the Commission slideshow, which was published at the same time as Monsieur Barnier's uh, speech. Now, this shouldn't be any great surprise to anyone. The Commission's approach all along has been <clears throat> pretty much sticking to the principle that if you leave the EU, you should expect to be less uh, well-off uh, than member states. Uh, that's obvious, and if I were the Commission's chief negotiator, that's exactly uh, what I would be, uh, be doing as a starting point. Uh, but that doesn't make it any of the, uh, the more uh, welcome um, and any uh, less of a concern. And I think uh, others have said that at least the issue has surfaced now, which is possibly a good thing. Um, and one would hope that it's now one which European lawmakers, uh, uh, the law enforcement professionals around the world and parliamentarians uh, 
we'll begin to look at seriously. As others have said, there isn't all that much time. In my former uh, profession, um, uh, I led a negotiation, which some of you may remember, uh, the Protocol um, 36 uh, negotiation, the in-out, uh, shake it all about, as I think Yvette Cooper described it in the House, House of Commons. Um, that took um, 18 months of um, hard negotiation, 18 months of my life, which has now turned out to be completely pointless and which I won't ever get back, but there we are. Um, so there is no doubt, uh, why is this an important issue? There's no doubt that uh, UK intelligence, information, our technical assistance and uh, our leadership has provided protection not only to uh, the UK but to other European uh, citizens as well. Many of the major advances in EU security and JHA have started off as uh, United Kingdom ideas. PNR, um, the, the former Home Secretary, now Prime Minister, uh, 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 devoted an enormous amount of time to uh, advocacy for the PNR agreement. And as Baroness Ludford and others will remember, uh, we had late-night conversations about how we might uh, arrive at uh, uh, an acceptable uh, deal, which was done. Just to prove I'm not making a political point, uh, if you go back as long as uh, 2005, which may well turn out to be the UK's last presidency, um, uh, the, the leadership shown by Charles Clark in establishing uh, the principle of uh, intelligence-based uh, policing has led to uh, what we see now in Europol, which is an internationally respected uh, law enforcement analytical and data uh, capacity and playing a major role in com uh, combating threats to our safety. So you can argue that, as some have done, that uh, this should all um, continue. You can also argue, as some have done, that many of the European instruments in this field uh, benefit uh, the fight against crime uh, rather more than the, uh, the pure fight against uh, uh, terrorism and uh, security. Um, uh, you could say that Article 4.2 of Lisbon provides continuing uh, uh, basis for uh, reserving national security to bilateral relationships between member states. I, I completely respect that point of view. But, as others have said, when Jeremy Fleming, an internationally respected head of one of the world's uh, leading intelligence agencies, expresses his concerns about what is being proposed... Uh, then his view should ring an alarm bell, even in Berlin. So um, I'm not sh really sure that the uh, position taken by the European Commission so far um, is based on an understanding of how uh, these issues really work. So may I, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes on, on that. In putting together a composite picture of the threat to uh, Europe and further afield, specialists in this area rely on any number of uh, sources from the most sensitive national uh, gathered uh, data through open source material to pooled data and to material held on European and other data databases. And that's why our experts take uh, the membership of CIS2, uh, the Euro Europol intelligence system, the passenger name records, the hit-no-hit no basis on which PRUM is uh, uh, set up, and the other mechanisms of uh, cooperation. Uh, so, seriously. Now, individually, not one of those provides the golden key. Taken as a whole, 
because they are vital tools to get to a point where through triangulation, through painstaking analysis, through cross-checking, you can detect uh, the beginnings of a serious threat to uh, life and limb. Now, I've sat with uh, former Home Secretaries um, of both political parties, while um, other European interior ministers have privately come up to her and her predecessors um, and said uh, thank you for providing vital information that has actually allowed us to foil uh, threats to our own cities and citizens. So I think those interior ministers, and maybe the uh, Commission has now uh, prompted a debate in which their voices will be heard, I think the questions which uh, they need to ask themselves are these. If we put into effect what is on the table from the Commission, as exemplified in the Barnier speech, as exemplified in the, the, the slideshow, will that make the citizens of France, Germany, Belgium and their fellow member states uh, more or less safe? And if the answer is less safe, then uh, the question is whether the principle of the rules-based approach, the principle of solidarity, should uh, trump, if you'll pardon the word, the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the um, uh, safety of the European uh, citizen. Uh, finally, who, as uh, someone who spent 15 years, uh, as Charles was mentioning, negotiating these issues, I have to say I see the Commission's proposal, and it may, let's hope it is, it may be a starting position. They're not noted for their flexibility, but let's hope it's a starting position. Uh, but if it's not, uh, as set out at the moment, I would regard it as being both unimaginative and unwise. If it's carried through, uh, then I would regard it as being irresponsible. And that's said more in sorrow than in anger. So um, let us hope that there is flexibility on uh, both sides as we approach this uh, negotiation. It's not going to be any easier than the rest of the negotiation, but it is uh, an incredibly serious issue. Time is running out if we are to get it right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter, and thanks to all our panellists for keeping to time. So, welcome back. I hope you um, refreshed your mind after this rather um, yeah, heavy outlook in the morning. Um, our, our event seems to be very timely. I don't know if it's, that is a good thing or not, um, given that it means basically what we do is relevant, but at the same time, the stakes seem to be very high, and uh, it would be easier if they weren't. Um, we are now shifting towards um, foreign and development policy and trade-offs. Um, my name is Felix Dane. I'm the new director of the Konrad Adenauer Foundation here in the UK and Ireland. And I first give the floor to Ian, and um, then we go along the line of the panelists. Um, you all have about seven minutes each. Please, Ian, you have the floor. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed, Felix, and thanks very much to Conrad Adenauer Stiftung for supporting this, uh, this project. Um, I'm afraid, like a, a broken record, I'm going to sound rather like uh, Camino first, in the first session in saying that uh, when we started out, we thought that this would be one of the easier areas of cooperation, and it hasn't really turned out that way. Uh, and I think the main reason that in the foreign policy area it, it's um, 
proving more difficult to work out how the EU and UK will work together after Brexit is that the UK still hasn't decided whether it wants to be a, a sort of um, mini superpower uh, which works with the EU only when it chooses to do so and to which the EU ought to listen in rather the same way that it listens to the US, or whether the UK wants to be a maxi-Norway with a default option of aligning itself with what the EU is doing, but with the ability to work behind the scenes to influence U EU policy in the areas that matter most to London. And that trade-off between autonomous policy-making and influence is one that I don't think the UK is yet ready to discuss uh, very openly. The line that, that I have heard amounts more or less to, in principle, independent, but in practice, aligned. And it seems to me that that may be the worst of both worlds. Now, the latest um, slide pack from the European Commission was published too late to be incorporated in this report, but it summarises the problem from an EU perspective, uh, which is that the UK wants more contact and more influence than any other third country has. It wants to be able to do things like developing sanctions regimes jointly and in the, in the uh, development assistance area to be involved in joint programming at the strategic level, not just at the, uh, the country level. But it also wants to be able to join in uh, with EU foreign policy only on a case-by-case -case basis. And the EU view is that those sorts of arrangements would interfere too much with the EU's own autonomous decision-making and they would uh, cause problems, primarily, I guess, by giving offence to other like-minded third countries like Norway that would not have the same uh, degree of uh, both influence and autonomy that the UK is looking for. I don't think this latest... Um, pack of uh, information from the Commission changes the recommendations in our report very much, but I do think that it adds to a sense that it may be harder than we might have hoped at the outside, outset to reach agreement. Now, what sort of agreement should the UK be looking for? I think the choices are between a set of relatively informal arrangements covering different areas or something more like the Canadian, uh, Canadian Strategic Partnership Agreement with the EU, which gives you a legally binding framework of, of meetings and so on. My own view is that a legally, a legally binding uh, agreement on the modalities for your cooperation is quite helpful in that it gives you a guarantee that there will be a regular series of meetings that, at which you will have some chance to feed in your views. It makes it um, harder to reach the point where people say, well, it's too busy or the Brits are too difficult, let's just cancel the meetings and forget about it. And there have been periods in the EU-US foreign policy relationship where meetings have gone quiet for a while because, for whatever reason, it didn't seem necessary or desirable to go ahead with them. 
what does the EU want in return for a, an arrangement of that sort? I think probably it wants more, more of a guarantee that the UK will try um, to align itself, not to circumvent EU positions. Now, in the development sphere, it's quite interesting to read what DFID has in the past written about EU development assistance, uh, and it's very complementary. And it seems to me that if the UK continues to think that EU spending matches UK priorities and uh, that assistance is well managed, then it makes sense for the, the UK to look indeed for ways to get involved in joint programming and to contribute to EU trust funds and to take part in their, in their management. And the counterpart of that is that it also ought to accept that the Commission has a decisive voice uh, on programmes, on projects within programmes, and on which ones go ahead and don't. Last point I want to make is whatever formal structures we agree on, they will have to be backed up by informal arrangements. Every third country, like-minded third country that I spoke to in the process of writing this report said that the formal stuff was important because it, it gave you a way in which decisions could be made. But the informal was where uh, policy was shaped. And that means, crucially, that our representation in Brussels and our bilateral embassies across Europe will have to be properly staffed for that. Political sections, which for the last 15 years or more have been shrinking in Europe, will have to be grown again. And ironically, British ministers will have to reconcile themselves to the fact that they need to spend not less, but more time coordinating with their European colleagues. The opportunity of five minutes over coffee in the margins of a foreign affairs committee will be gone it's the day trip to Bucharest or Madrid or Rome, which is going to be the pattern of future relations. Thank you very much, Ian, also for sticking to the time. I'd like now to give the floor to Simon Fraser, please. Okay, thank you very much. Well, um, this is about plugging in the British, um, this discussion. There are people on this panel who are more familiar with the electrical circuitry than me. Um, so I'm going to talk a bit more at the general level rather than the specific technical level about the mechanisms, um, although I'm sure we can come back to that in questions. But what I want to do is to say, first of all, we've got to make sure that we have this debate in context. And the context is that Europe is facing huge challenges, in my view, in foreign policy and international affairs. Uh, and the underlying challenge for Europe is a challenge of relevance. Um, uh, the scenery is shifting around us as we have this discussion, and particularly in this country as we obsess about Brexit. Uh, we have an agenda that's being set by China and the United States, and it's a very different United States than the one that we are used to, and we would be foolish to expect that that is going to change, that isn't necessarily going to be a short-term phenomenon. And, and my concern is that those of us in Europe uh, risk sounding like a slightly... Um, irrelevant, stuck record talking about the importance of the multilateral system and values in international affairs, which it's very important to do, uh, but clinging to something which actually is no longer 
where the action is. So the context of this discussion about how we relate to the European Union, I think, has to be borne in mind. I personally think we are entering an extremely risky period in international affairs, in foreign policy, uh, and it behoves this country as well as the rest of Europe to respond to that. So the, the, the institutions and mechanisms of the European Union and common foreign and security policy, for me, are not the answer to that challenge. They are part of the answer to that challenge, but we are kidding ourselves if we think that the discussion about the technicalities is going to solve the real-world issue. The real issue is about the will of European governments and nations and peoples to be actively engaged uh, in the world and to, ha in terms of attitude, resources and commitment, uh, to address the issues that are ahead of us. And that includes the United Kingdom. And I think it's absolutely critical that the United Kingdom remains actively and positively engaged, and therefore that this whole concept of global Britain, whatever it is, and let's not remember that Europe, let's not forget that Europe is a very important part of the globe, but the whole concept is evolved in a more responsible and substantive way. My observation, actually, of recent months is that the United Kingdom is demonstrating, picking up one of uh, Ian's points, that it is European still. Our foreign policy positions and instincts have been aligned with those of the EU on, I think, all the major foreign policy challenges uh, of recent times, and they have been manifestly not Trumpian, and I expect that to continue. And so the real issue about, <clears throat> about being plugged in for me is that we need to make sure that we maintain the good political relationship with other European countries and, and keep our eye on the ball as we go through the process of Brexit. The European Union, in my experience in foreign affairs, has been a major multiplier for the United Kingdom in foreign policy and other aspects of our international activity. In fact, I would argue the major multiplier uh, in recent years, uh, and vice versa, and I think this is important to bear in mind. We have been a major multiplier for the European Union uh, alongside France uh, in the world. Uh, so there's a position of strength to work from there. Uh, there's a mutuality about it. I believe it's inevitable with Brexit that we are going to lose a significant part of that leverage, although I think there are ways in which we can find, you know, we, we should be seeking ways to redefine it uh, so that we can still use types of leverage, but we are going to be losers uh, from this process. <clears throat> and in that context, you know, I, I've always been a bit of a skeptic about CFSP per se, to be honest with you. Uh, it has a sort of lowest common denominator aspect to it in many, in many respects, although I do take the point that in certain areas of policy, like sanctions policy development and implementation, it's been incredibly important, or at least the, the structures around that within the European Union uh, sp spreading across CFSP and actually community policy have been very important. But the habit of coordination and, and discussion is really, really important, and that is what we're going to lose. It, it's Ian's point that we're not going to be in the room. I don't know how many meetings a week you go to, Paul, in which you sit down. No, I'm sure, but you sit down and talk to people. And the fact that you're doing that and you're part of that discussion is incredibly important, and we're going to, we're going to lose that. So we do need to find ways of staying involved and maintaining that habit. But my final two points are that in, as we look at the relationship we want, we have got to be realistic about it. We've got to come with a clear 
understanding of what it is we're bringing to the table and what it is we want to achieve and how we're going to engage with the EU collectively and individually with major EU countries who matter to us. But if we go in there demanding sort of automatic rights of attendance and sitting at the table for all these meetings, I just don't think that's going to work. I think it's unrealistic. I think that the position that the former chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee put out in a paper, I think it was last year, um, uh, uh, saying that we should demand automaticity of presence in those discussions, I just think it's not realistic. And my, and my very final point is, um, when you look at some of the models for a third-party relationship that are in this report, whether it is the foreign policy debate with the U.S. or the, even the legal agreement with Canada, let's not kid ourselves. That is just you know, really pro, pro forma stuff. At least when I was in, involved in the European Commission, we used to go and sit in these meetings. You know, there is not content and substance of the sort that we need in, those, in the framework of those discussions to be able to conduct our affairs with other Europeans successfully in the world. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, please, Rosa, you have the floor. Thank you very much. Um, let me just start by commending this and the other papers of this series, which um, I think are really um, uh, go straight to the heart of the issues, and they also look back analytically at what can be done um, in order to find some policy recommendations. And we were asked to identify, perhaps, or to comment on one or two of them. And I think I endorse them all, but I think one important one is precisely what has been said now about making sure that there are informal channels and networks um, for that uh, conversation to continue um, once the UK leaves um, the EU. So it's, it's quite important, I think, to set those up immediately, actually, start working on creating those networks um, in order to influence and shape policy um, in its formation. Um, and perhaps one idea could be for the UK to propose some kind of arrangement for the Foreign Affairs Council, which is not the right to participate in it, but it is more than the lunch that the Turkish Foreign Minister or, or others occasionally get. Um, and that, could, that is something that could be worked on um, immediately. Um, all these recommendations, I think they are endorsable and um, implementable, um, providing, of course, the split is um, amicable and not acrimonious. I think the trust is a key factor here. And uh, if EU foreign policy has managed to develop over the years um, through intergovernmental mechanisms, it has been because trust has pushed it forward. Um, and that's something that needs to be remembered. Um, I would like to say a few words about how I think things are shifting in Brussels at the moment. Um, actually, no, first, just before the areas, I think there are a few areas that one can single out, um, which are areas for cooperation, which, where it is obvious, where the UK contribution has always been obvious and will continue to be obvious, and that's the Balkans and indeed London, there will be the um, Berlin process uh, meeting will be held in London next month. Um, sa sanctions, of course, and those are mentioned very well um, in the paper. Africa, um, if I were the UK foreign minister, I wouldn't want Europe to be designing the future Africa policy without the UK. Um, Nick, I hope you can say something about that. And of course, the Middle East, um, climate change. And I wouldn't have said this a year ago, China, because I think EU member states have fundamentally quite different positions on China, but because of Trump's war, trade war against China, it requires Europeans to actually coalesce and decide where they want to go and what they want to do on China. 
Um, so these would be areas, in my view, for obvious um, cooperation. But I see a bit of a shift happening in Brussels. Now, after the vote, and I would say until quite recently, there was a big push to demonstrate that the EU can do foreign security policy without the UK, um, maybe at a lower level, at a slightly, you know, punching at a lower level than with the UK. And I think PESCO represents that, and the, the discussion on security and defence reflects that. Um, but of course, at the same time, there was also a desire to show solidarity, for instance, the Salisbury attacks. Um, and de facto, we have seen that the UK and the EU have aligned on uh, plenty of issues. Um, however, I do see a slight um, shift in the debate in the sense that whereas initially the justification for moving forward was Brexit, now the justification is, is Trump. And um, at long last, European leaders are beginning to sort of have the sort of impacts of Trump sink in. And um, my question is, looking at the debates coming up in other countries, for instance, Germany, the speech, the foreign minister's speech last week, um, my question is how, um, uh, how transatlantic will Europe be in the future? I'm going to return to this later. Um, first, I'd just like to say a few words about the multiannual financial framework, um, which um, I actually, there's some fact sheets, some nice and easy fact sheets if you want to see how the EU proposes to spend money on, on specific areas, but I actually um, went through the, the document on my way to London um, to see if there were any clues about how the Commission is proposing to think about the UK in the next financial framework, um, and there aren't any. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that signals that the EU is really working on the scenario of being without the UK and is not factoring in methods for cooperation at this stage. I think some suggestions ought to come from London, um, but I think we need to be aware of this. Now, what does the multiannual financial framework propose as far as um, foreign policy is concerned? Well, one aspect which I think is important for development aid and for future cooperation with the UK, um, and that is it's proposing a single instrument which would include the European Development, development Fund, which so far was an extra budget tool with member state contributions. Now, this, um, this fund is open to other donors um, and um, on the model of the trust funds. And one of the most important participants in this, in, um, uh, you know, co contributing to these financial efforts has been Switzerland. So the model that the EU is proposing for the UK, which would be open to the UK, the UK is not even mentioned, but it's the same model that has been used, for instance, by Switzerland to, beat, to top up the, um, trust, the emergency trust funds for Africa, uh, the uh, Madad trust fund for Syria, etc. So this is what is on the cards at the moment. I think this is something that needs to be taken into account, and it does look like um, there hasn't been any lobbying on part of the UK to try and propose, for instance, to maintain the EDF. That, that looks like if there has been any lobbying, it hasn't been successful. Of course, there still is time because the MFF, this is just the first proposal. Uh, but I don't see many signs of um, UK um, lobbying uh, to make sure that that desire to contribute to joint programming is actually reflected in the financial tools available. And the other um, instrument, uh, well, the other aspect of this single instrument is the European Peace Facility which would be to support CSDP missions. Of course, CSDP missions are open to third countries, uh, but the financing of them 
is something that probably needs to be um, also looked at. Um, so, to conclude, I'm sure I'm running out of time. Trump, going back to how transatlantic Europe will be. Um, I see three possible developments. I mean, these are the negative ones. I hope there are also some positive ones. I'll stick to my, the, what, um, what keeps me up at, way, at night. I mean, the first point is that there are political leaders in Europe who find the Trump model rather attractive. Um, so, uh, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on, the, on Trump at the G7. Well, there was one of the G6, um, that was Italy, which was actually quite happy with what Trump was saying, and we shouldn't forget that. Um, so there are temptations that Euro Europeans could split. Um, uh, Trump is also posing some quite stark choices, um, which again could, could lead to either a split or to a less transatlantic Europe. Hmm? Um, a Europe which decides, as Merkel said, to take its destiny in its hands. Um, and my next point on that would be, well, how global would Europe's outlook be if that were the case? Go back to the MFF, and there's been quite a lot of trumpeting about how, uh, you know, that more resources are devoted to foreign policy. Indeed, it's true, but most of those resources go to strengthening the external border and to controlling migration. So if Europe... If Europe's development is, you know, in, terms of, in global terms, becomes one of a provincial Europe, then I think we need to ask the question of whether the UK will be interested in cooperating with such a power. And I say this um, rather regretfully, because um, I would be very much in favour of the UK and the EU cooperating as closely as possible um, following Brexit. Uh, but I think we need to take into account that the debate is shifting very quickly and rapidly, and we don't really know in which direction um, it will be going. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rosa. Um, the next will be Nick, and if you wonder why the director of the Royal African Society is on the panel, he was until recently um, a senior British diplomat in the European External Action Service, and that capacity is here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I just certainly have sort of, three points to make, really. Um, the first very strongly echoes what uh, Simon and Rosa have already said that uh, we appear to be in a world of parallel universes. And the domestic debate about Brexit seems to be taking in a wholly insulated environment that assumes a benign world. That you know, everything else remains the same and we just leave the European Union. That's fine, we adjust. Uh, the reality is that the world is very far from benign and it is becoming less benign. And the risks uh, for the UK internationally are increasing. Um, and as a Maltese colleague told me in Brussels this week, you picked a fine time to leave us, Lucille. You know, this is when we need uh, to have the maximum uh, solidarity amongst Europe because we are faced by a whole set of international threats. The, this, uh, diver, this divergence was encapsulated when the Prime Minister came back from the G7 summit in Canada and went to the House of Commons and said she was very worried about the risks to the uh, rules-based free trade international order, and then in the afternoon went to the 1922 committee and urged her MPs to be solid in leaving the world's largest rules-based free trade international organization. But, you know, there we go. This is the um, world we are living in, uh, and it's a bit worrying. You know, foreign policy has to deal with reality, with the realities of power that comes from money, from arms, from your friends. That's you know, the three core elements. 
And uh, on all three of those, the risk is that Brexit makes both the UK and Europe weaker. And the EU is very aware of that. Uh, there seems to be less awareness here, but uh, that is the reality. And in unilaterally abrogating the treaties that defined the UK's relations with its nearest uh, neighbours in Europe, uh, there has been a creation of a situation where there is a certain lack of trust in the UK. And rebuilding that trust is going to be essential if we are to establish a good post-Brexit working relationship. Um, my second point is that in order to look at the right kind of relations uh, to govern uh, our cooperation on international efforts, we need to understand what the European Union is. And what has underpinned a lot of this debate continues to be a lack of understanding uh, of what the European Union is. It's a grand bargain. Every member state gets the thing that's most important to it and makes some compromises on the other things so that you can have those benefits. And it does that through a structure and a process based on the rule of law um, and free trade. And it's designed to make the world safe for small and medium-sized countries. And it's been very successful in that, considering the century that came before. Um, but uh, for that, the consequence of that is that we need to look at a, a structure for the post-Brexit relationship. And there are some who think, you know, in international affairs, you just deal with the big boys, you talk to the French, you talk to the Germans, that's who matters, the other members of the Security Council, uh, you fix it all up and the European Union doesn't matter that much. But in practice, it does. It still does. Um, for small countries, European foreign policy is their foreign policy, except one or two exceptional things. Basically, they will take the European line. So the big countries... Uh, for exactly the reason Simon says, for them too, it's a multiplier. Uh, for France and Germany, they want the European Union to take their position. The French have been brilliant at it, and they will continue to be brilliant at it, so European foreign policy will become increasingly French or Franco-German foreign policy, writ large. Uh, we can have some influence on that by going and talking to the French, talking to the Germans, uh, but it's, it is an amalgam. And uh, as has been said, we will be outside uh, the room. In order to, though, define what our input should be and how we manage those relations, because the EU is our relations with the other European countries as well as the rest of the world, my own view is you'll do a lot better if you do aim for a treaty, a treaty not just on internal security but on the whole of international uh, relations aspects, because you can't separate internal security and external security. And you need that because... To deal with the EU, you need process, you need rule of law, and that needs to be clear. And if you try and do it all informally, you'll find you're hammering on the door, which may or may not be open. You need processes that ensure there is an open door, an open window through which you can speak. Now, how far you go, I don't know. Uh, the UK, in its 39 slides, uh, set out uh, in great detail how invaluable uh, Britain was to Europe. We do all these things for you. You should keep us in. Uh, Monsieur Barnier, uh, in reply, is quite clearly both establishing some points of principle, you are a third country, but also it's a bargaining position because 
what you get on foreign policy will depend on the overall package deal because the EU is a package deal and its relations with a third country will be a package deal. Uh, that's the only way it can work. So he, it is both a negotiating position and some positions of principle. It is true that current relations as defined with third countries, none of them fit the UK. The UK is too big, too influential, uh, too close uh, for any of those models to fit exactly. But that's why we need to propose something with a certain humility and honesty that actually we need the European Union. We, the UK, need to have clearly defined relations because it's in our mutual security interest internally but equally externally. Third point, just to take two examples, I was dealing in Brussels first of all with Africa and then more recently with the Middle East. Um, and you look at the core issues in the Middle East. You look at Iran, you look at uh, Syria, you look at the Middle East peace process. Uh, our foreign policy, British foreign policy, is effectively the same as the European foreign policy. The Europeans act collectively. The Gulf is perhaps the exception. The UK has a special relationship with the Gulf. Gulf countries are delighted about Brexit um, because uh, now they can deal with the Brits uh, without any of this European human rights stuff that used to get in the way. You know, that's fine, great. Let's just do business like we used to. Uh, and if that's going to be our foreign policy, that'll be our foreign policy. Um, so actually, there is a huge identity of interest and Europe struggles to have influence on Syria, on Iran, unless it acts collectively and that will impact on the UK unless we can find ways to continue acting collectively. And secondly, in Africa, as Rosa has said, uh, there is an enormously close identity of interest between the UK and other European countries in Africa um, on, I, on aid, on counter-terrorism security, on uh, migration, uh, and on all that, we really want to be as close as possible to the European Union and yet the EU is going ahead and defining how it's going to relate to the rest of Africa without the UK, because we're leaving. So you know, that's not. And that will impact on our ability to cooperate with, spend money through, and influence the policy of. At the moment, DFID is insisting, you know, we want to contribute, but therefore we want a voice and we want a vote. And that comes up against Mr. Barnier's red line, uh, which is as, um, as uh, firm and uh, rational as uh, the Prime Minister's two red lines. So uh, the reality is, on the ground, you will have EU member states and the UK trying to achieve exactly the same ends. Uh, whether uh, British ambassadors will still be entitled to join European heads of mission for some of their meetings from time to time, we'll see. Uh, they can probably do it ad hoc as long as nobody knows. Uh, but uh, it will become increasingly hard work. And my conclusion from all this is, as Ian says, we can work with Europe. We do continue to have an identity of interest, but it's going to be an awful lot more work to achieve the same or nearly the same results as we have had in the past. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, lots of work ahead. Uh, please, Paul, you have the floor. Thanks very much. Um, I think Ian's wrong to posit a sort of binary trade-off between us being very closely aligned with the European Union and us being completely independent for the reasons I think Simon gave, which is that both before and after Brexit, our foreign policy is one in which the EU relationship is part of a much broader toolkit. 
I've got perhaps the unique distinction, if distinction is the word, of having represented the UK on the UN Security Council, the North Atlantic Council, um, and now the EU's Political and Security Committee. Um, uh, in a couple of uh, instances at uh, sort of uh, not at ambassadorial level, but nevertheless, I've seen those bodies in action. But what I've also seen, which is more relevant, are the small groups that are either subsidiaries of those bodies or are outside those bodies where the real strategic policy choices are hammered out. So uh, the E3 on Iran, uh, the P3 on DPRK, uh, the Balkans contact group, uh, and now the Balkans Quint, um, uh, have been the places where some of the fundamental policy dilemmas have been, have been wrestled with and have been this of the upstream fora. And if global Britain means something in the multilateral context, it means not just our membership of these multilateral institutions, but of this archipelago or network of networks uh, of small groups. So as the lead UK negotiator for the, the NATO Warsaw Summit, much of the work was done in a constellation of many small groups with subsets of uh, the NATO countries. Um, the critical negotiation on what became the UN Security Council resolution that established the international presence in Kosovo was done in the G8 for reasons related to Russia falling out with the contact group. The work on Iran has largely been done in the E3 in the E3 with the US, in the E3 plus three at different times, which is not to diminish the importance, not least for smaller member states, of the formal decision-shaping and decision-making um, at 28 in the European Union, at 29 now at NATO, at 15 in the Security Council. But a great deal of it takes place, if you like, behind, behind the scenes. Um, and we have been, and I'm sure we will remain, uh, very active in those groupings uh, and in others. Just to take an example on Iran, uh, uh, if one projected ahead to a year's time, us outside the European Union, and think about what we've been doing over Iran in the last few months, um, we worked as the E3 internally and then with the US to look at how we could um, uh, take on uh, the challenge posed by Iran's behaviour in the region. Um, we decided as part of that we would go for EU sanctions against uh, Iranian individuals and entities for their uh, regional role. Uh, we took that into the EU. We didn't succeed um, uh, for reasons which we could come to in Q&A. And then we came back out again and we, and we worked separately and we are working separately as the E3 on that regional um, uh, dimension. Had we been a non-EU member state, we'd have had the same upstream discussions in the E3. We'd have had the same discussions with the US. I think France and Germany would have then gone into the EU to try and get the sanctions agreed at 27. We would have supported them if they'd wanted that. I suspect they would have still failed and you know, life would have moved on. So I think this interplay of formal and informal um, small groups and uh, large formal settings is, from a practitioner's point of view, uh, a critical part of the context. So the first of the four points I wanted to make was about context. The second point is about sort of our proposals. And I needn't say too much about that because we've set them out in various uh, speeches and documents. But I think one of the things that resonates with my counterparts in Brussels, wherever they are on the spectrum, if you like, is the strong sense, and Simon has alluded to it, of Britain being very much representative of what I would call a European mainstream focus on the importance of a rules-based international system and of the sort of values that the European Union represents, which is not to say that we don't recognise the limitations of consensus uh, decision-making, and there will clearly be new opportunities for us once we are uh, no longer bound by that process, but there's a large overlap in terms of interests and values. If you look at the new 
annual report that um, the High Representative has produced on the second anniversary of the EU global strategy, I don't think there's much that many British policymakers would, would dissent from in the analysis or the, or the prescription. So I think we have made the case that we, are, uh, we have a large set of overlapping interests. Um, uh, we accept we're going to become a third country. We're not going to be part of the formal decision-making. But I think it's not hubristic to say, because we're a departing member state and because of our role in this international ecosystem, that we're not any old third country. And the Task Force 50, the Commission presentation from January, I think it was, explicitly recognises our, our P5 status. And certainly, in informal contacts, that's something that people, uh, people make a great point of. In terms of how the other side views us, my third point, I think there is an emphasis, and Nick brings it out very well, on the European legal order as being integral to how the EU sees itself and its interactions with the rest of the world. I think we tend to look at things in terms of what's the real, whack, the real world impact, what can we actually achieve. On the other side, there's perhaps more emphasis than we would place on issues of institutional autonomy. But I think given that we accept that we're going to become a third country, given that we are looking at a much more subtle and nuanced form or forms of interaction, I think that's something that, um, uh, that will not be any sort of problem. And having now taken part in a couple of the rounds of negotiations, I think there's a good level um, of understanding about that. I would also say in terms of the current backdrop, and Simon has also alluded to this, the UK along with France and Germany has played the lead role on policy towards Iran, towards Syria, not least um, the EU's backing for the, uh, the Syria airstrikes that Britain, France and America did. Um, Britain has played the lead role in terms of the response to Salisbury, uh, including what will be quite, I think, a robust set of conclusions at the European Council at the end of this week on CBRN and on hybrid, working very closely uh, with France and Germany, uh, but with others as well. And on wider issues such as the Paris Climate Accords, trade negotiations, I think the Prime Minister has been, has been and has been seen to be very much a leading uh, European player. Um, so as we look to the, the future prospects, um, uh, I don't want to be in any sense complacent, but I think this is an area where there is more underlying understanding than perhaps the headlines uh, uh, and some of the, the buzz around town uh, would, would suggest. I think as Simon and Nick have both said, the nature of the beast really requires a set of formal and informal understandings. There will need to be the minimum necessary underpinnings for Britain to be able to take part in, say, um, European Union-led uh, military operations and to have sort of formal dialogues and a security of information agreement and all that, all that stuff which our various papers bring out. But a lot of this will depend on the sort of same sort of intense, um, more or less informal uh, interactions with key European countries and key European institutional policymakers um, that is to a large extent I think marks a good deal of practical continuity with where we are uh, today. Um, for UCREP, for the UK Permanent Representation, and I, I speak in the presence of two extremely distinguished former Permanent and Lord Hani and Lord Kerr, I think um, it will be a big change in how we operate, to say the least of things. Um, uh, we will be a bit more like a sort of bilateral embassy in some ways, trying to understand an interagency process, trying to influence it. We will still want our ideas to be in uh, and around the table, if, even if we're no longer in the room. That will require a different sort of diplomacy, but I think it's an interesting uh, personal and professional challenge. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, and thank you to all the speakers for their input and sticking to time.
Right, well, uh, welcome to this uh, final session of the day. Um, and uh, looking at the title of this, uh, I think it's designed to be the optimistic session. <laughs> positive, positive sum. Question mark. Uh, question mark. Okay, I did not write the title. But then it goes on to, to talk about the pitfalls of military and defence industrial cooperation after Brexit. I think it's fair to say that before uh, the Brexit decision, uh, the UK believed that there was one primary uh, organisation for multilateral defence cooperation in Europe, and it wasn't the European Union, it was NATO. Uh, and secondly, there was a belief uh, that, uh, if possible, the EU's role in defence should be constrained as much as possible uh, and confined to a relatively small number of crisis management tasks that certainly shouldn't have a operational headquarters or have ambitions above its station. Uh, and given that background, perhaps it would have been thought that this, at least, <laughs> even if there are bigger problems in relation to GHA and many other areas, this at least would be an area which would be relatively uh, straightforward. Uh, and our panels, I'm sure, will tell us whether that's the perception uh, that remains today. Certainly in recent weeks, although it's hardly a surprise for those following the issues, issues around the defence industry in particular uh, have become uh, more difficult, uh, more tense between the UK and its commission partners. And that reflects partly the fact that that British attitude on the EU's role in defence has become increasingly outdated. Because just as the UK is leaving the EU, the EU is becoming more interested in defence. Uh, and the Galileo uh, case, of course, is an example of some of the problems that come out of that. So we have four fantastic speakers uh, be, uh, to present to us, uh, and uh, we're going to start with uh, Sophia Besch uh, from the Centre for European Reform, really one of uh, the leading, if not the leading, uh, expert on this in our think tank community in London. We're delighted to have you here, not only for your expertise, but also for your ability to explain <laughs> Uh, these really complicated issues in a very understandable way to uh, the broader British public. So, Sophia, why don't you get us started? Thank you so much, Malcolm, for your very kind words and for hosting us here. And thank you to all of you for coming back after the lunch. It's appreciated. Um, so I thought that I was going to start off by talking about Galileo for a little bit um, as one of the first defense-related briefs that have been discussed between the UK and the EU. And not only has it set a problematic precedent, it also shows some of the themes that will shape the defense negotiations to come, I think. So what were the takeaways from Galileo? First, security considerations did not feature very prominently in the Commission's position on Galileo. Instead, Barnier's team has focused on the core principles that were agreed by the EU for the negotiations with the UK, which are protecting the autonomy of the EU's decision-making process and making sure that a non-member of the Union cannot have the same benefits as a member. Second, member states were not very involved in the EU's position on Galileo until late in the day. Um, some in Paris and Berlin have objected to the Commission acting too independently, but really their objections have related to process more than substance of the Commission's position. 
And this reflects, I think, that Brexit and defence is not necessarily at the top of the agenda for many member states. Third, many in Brussels remember that the UK initially opposed the uh, EU initiative uh, Galileo and are sceptical about the UK's enthusiasm about it now. They did not want to make the satellite program success dependent on the UK after Brexit. And fourthly, and related to that, this links into the debate on European strategic autonomy. So the idea of European strategic autonomy was to enable Europeans to take care of their own defence without relying on the United States. Some in Brussels and in national capitals now think that, in fact, what European strategic autonomy should be is actually EU strategic autonomy, and that the EU should strive to build up its defence industrially and operationally without having to rely on the United Kingdom. So I think there are lessons... Uh, for both sides on this uh, from the Galileo from the Galileo negotiations but because we're in London I'm not going to uh, be too critical of the commission and instead focus on what the UK can uh, take <laughs> can take from from the Galileo negotiations so I think what Galileo the lessons learned from Galileo should be that the UK may need to let go of the premise that because the EU cannot afford to go Without the UK in the defence sphere, it will therefore necessarily agree to the UK's asks and not treat the UK like any other country. That's not what we've seen with Galileo. I think that Britain should um, put more effort into convincing Europeans that its offer to become a very close defence partner to the European Union is credible and that Britain will not once more become a spanner in the works of the EU's defence initiatives once it has negotiated a privileged access post-Brexit. And to be credible, I think the UK may need to explain its own interests in a security partnership better. Finally, the UK has an interest in shifting the defence negotiations out of the Commission's legalistic approach and into a more defence-focused framework. The UK is not going to win on regulations. It needs to engage the security and defence experts in Brussels and in member states. Finally, I want to make two more points on negotiations going forward. Um, one slightly more and one slightly less optimistic. Um, first on operations, the UK wants to continue to contribute to EU military operations and it has said that it wants its contribution to be commensurate and scalable. So the more it contributes in troops and assets, the more influence it would like to have. Currently the EU's position does not allow for that. It's very difficult and quite unattractive for third countries to take part in military, oper military operations that the EU is leading. They do, but they don't like it. But that also means that the EU is missing out on um, the value of third country cooperation on military operations and Brexit I think has encouraged a reform process which the UK may benefit from and we talk about that in more detail in the, in the report. However, participation in EU operations is perhaps not the UK's most urgent priority when it comes to defence negotiations because the UK is actually quite confident that it will be able to deploy with its European partners through NATO through coalitions of the willing, perhaps through the European Intervention Initiative, which we've talked about in the second panel already. Um, so more importantly, and, and less straightforward, I'm afraid, um, we need to talk about the UK's involvement in defence capability um, cooperation. And the concern for the UK here is that the European ambition for defence autonomy could lead to the EU shutting out third countries that would like to contribute even if that means missing out on their industrial expertise. Um, since this report that we're talking about was, was written, the Council and the Parliament in, in Brussels 
have discussed new, rather restrictive regulation on the conditions under which third country firms may contribute to defense capability projects that are supported by the Commission's defense fund. Um, and the UK here really suffers from association with the United States, but it may struggle to achieve an exception um, from the general third country rules that are currently being drawn up in Brussels. And so I think it's an urgent priority for the UK to influence these regulations as they are being developed by demonstrating its value, for example, by offering cooperation on concrete short to medium term capability projects so that the EU's new defense initiatives don't discourage others uh, in Europe from working with the UK going forward. And I think I'll stop here. Thanks. Sophia, thank you very much uh, indeed. Uh, for our next speaker, we have Paul Everett, who's Chief Executive of ADS, and I think importantly can tell us something about uh, how uh, industry in this country is looking at these issues. I think in particularly interesting looking at uh, the headlines this morning and indeed the, uh, the, uh, the interview in the radio to, uh, for today program from Airbus UK, uh, I think bringing it home uh, how important our uh, uh, tackling these issues will be in the months ahead. So please, Paul. Well, thank you very much, and uh, Sophia, thank you. Um, so I kind of reflected on what should, I should be saying. So I, I kind of came to me that timing is always very important, isn't it? And sometimes timing works for you, sometimes timing works against you. And it seems at the moment from a, a kind of industrial perspective, you know, timing is not working for us just now. Normally, when we do a piece, or I do a piece around the defence industry in particular, but defence and security, aerospace, is, is to say that you know, we're a long-term industry. You know, we're generally patient. You know, we invest for the long term. You know, we don't respond to you know, kind of news stories or uh, events that happen on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis. The difficulty for us, and, and you know, Sophia kind of outlined it, is that as we look ahead... Um, in, and, and the context in which we are operating, you know, our customers, wherever they may be, in the UK, in Europe or elsewhere, you know, are cash constrained. They are looking for value for money. By and large, um, you know, in, from a UK point of view and a UK capability point of view, we are not able to produce something solely by ourselves mm -hmm. and have a domestic customer that can sustain our businesses. So therefore, when we look forward... We, um, I mean, as you know, well articulated, I think, in the 2015 uh, Strategic Defence and Security Review, you know, that notion of international by design, you know, is, incredi is incredibly important. We need we need uh, collaborative partners to afford, you know, kind of high-priced high capability, but also we need a uh, a wide market in which to be able to uh, uh, kind of. Uh, create the revenue to be able to afford the development of that capability. So we find ourselves at this particular moment in time, you know, facing a very um, you know, uh, difficult set of conditions because, you know, as Sophia has indicated, you know, the European Union has launched a significant initiative around defence, both in terms of defence research and technology and more latterly the sort of... Um, defence development, I suppose, which is the capability development and uh, an, uh, an incentive, if you will, for countries within Europe to uh, procure on a collective basis. You know, and, and whilst I think in, in previous times, certainly the UK government may have had some misgivings about the role of the EU, but I think from an industrial point of view, um, the EU has listened and focused its efforts, if you like, 
in, in areas which are genuinely beneficial in terms of creating capability and a more sustainable market. So the rules that are being created are important to us. Now, unfortunately, where we sit at the moment is that um, because of the Brexit negotiations, flexibility that we might have anticipated, you know, our, our um, kind of European partners would want to create because most understand the strength of UK industry and, you know, the, the if you like, having a big customer like the Ministry of Defence buying capability is, is clearly a good thing when you're trying to ensure that a range of capabilities are affordable. So, you know, in an ideal world, we should have been able to find sufficient flexibility, but we have an interplay between the uh, Task Force 50 team who are charged with negotiating the Brexit um, uh, negotiations, who are very clear that it's a rules-based approach and if you're a third country, that's a disadvantageous place to be. There are only, you know, kind of, there's two types of third country, ones that have nothing to do with one, us and ones that are part of, you know, uh, free trade areas or others. And you can choose, you can be Norway or you can be Canada, which one do you want? And that's their negotiating approach. From a UK point of view, Prime Minister has been very clear, we as industry are very clear, we don't, you know, we want something slightly different. We do want, we want to be a special third country because from a defence and security point of view, we think that would be to everyone's benefit. Our challenge, I think, and, and the challenge to both the, the teams within industry and particularly within government charged with um, like negotiating or influencing the detail of the European Defence Fund, if you like, is to try and keep the, keep, keep the thing alive or keep the options open for as long as possible until we can get some greater level of, of um, security or firmness around the final Brexit negotiation. At the point at which we can say we have something that looks like a deal, then I think we can go back and say we've got some opportunity to slightly tweak those arrangements so that it can be possible to have a special third country status that allows us to play a much more, or allows the UK to play a much more influential part. If that doesn't happen, and I'll kind of go back to um, Malcolm's point about this morning and the issue with, with Airbus, it faces industry with some difficult, and individual companies with some very difficult choices because many of them have, uh, you know, European as well as UK bases. And, you know, if, if they want to access some of the benefits of those European initiatives, they will have to do that via their European uh, footprint and that may mean giving the, those European uh, bases far more autonomy or far more power than might, they might ideally like. Now that would be, um, you know, what that means for the UK is the centre of gravity in terms of R&D, uh, high level research shifts away from the UK and into Europe. That's a bad thing for the UK and the UK economy long term. That's probably enough depressing stuff from me. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you very much. And can I just ask, just a supplementary, and it really arises from the Airbus case, how far do you think other defence companies based in the UK feel that they have to make some significant moves in how they conduct operations before, mark, before the uh, negotiations are concluded? 
I think we, we you know, again, as I, as I said in my introductions, you know, defence in particular is, is a kind of long cycle business and a longer cycle business than, than civil aerospace. The scale of, of some of the issues that we face in civil aerospace are greater. So, you know, we're, we're producing a high volume of aircraft relatively. Um, and therefore, the issues around things like customs and additional costs associated with those activities mean it's a much more pressing issue. So I, I'm, I'm not anticipating, you know, major uh, defence companies kind of uh, leaping, what one might say, on the bandwagon. But I think behind the scenes they are, they are concerned, they've expressed the same concerns. Um, you know, again, again I think, I think um, you know, it, it will mean, you know, we all hope that however it happens in the next few months, something good happens and those negotiations move into a more happy position. Okay? I'm an optimist and by nature. And if that happens, all good. <laughs> the danger, if it isn't, is that individual businesses faced with shareholders who will be saying, you know, where is our investment most secure? Where are the best opportunities for growth? They will uh, reshape their investment plans, and that will mean, you know, going where there is better business to be done. Hmm. I, mean, I, I, just, I mean, I guess, the, 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 you know, one, one thing around, you know, obviously that, that means that the... Uh, I think the UK's bilateral relationships are even more important now, but we can see, if we look at combat air, you know, the, the, you know, the potential threat of a, uh, um, a sort of France-Germany alliance on a new generation of, of, of aircraft fire would be very bad for the UK. Um, and you know, good news is that that spurred the MOD into action. Uh, whether it's going to be enough to convince our European partners that they want to be more closely aligned with us you know, time will tell. Excellent. Very good. So I thought I'd bring in Julie next, if, if okay. that's okay. Uh, Baroness Smith, uh, also one of our leading European experts. And it's uh, those who have been interested in the EU in this country for a number of years uh, have got, uh, must be having mixed blessings uh, in this period. On the one hand, of course, it's not exactly what you wish for. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, your expertise is in even greater demand than it, it has been. So... Uh, Julie, over to you. Thank you. I'm afraid that I have tended to think of Brexit as being a job creation scheme for academics, <laughs> lawyers, and would-be civil servants. It's not necessarily something that is ideal for the country, but yes, Malcolm, you're absolutely right that in terms of the academic side of things, Brexit is absolutely fascinating. And if one could simply view it in a bubble without having to live through it, then I would say even better. If we could do it in a parallel universe and see what it looks like. And then we could say, now you can see what leave looks like. Do you want to leave or would you rather stay? <laughs> Unfortunately, that isn't how the world works. And we are in a really odd situation where people are now called Brexit experts. And I'm not quite sure what it means to be a Brexit expert on the grounds that Brexit hasn't yet happened and we still don't know what it means. Um, now, obviously, if Michael Gove is right and the world's had enough of experts, then being an expert in something that nobody can define probably doesn't matter. <laughs> However, <coughs> in terms of this panel and the idea of, you know, is it the positive panel or the further depressed panel... I'm afraid, despite being a Liberal Democrat, therefore somebody who ought to be positive, I may be tending a little bit more towards the gloomy side of what I think might happen. But 
I really wanted to start off this afternoon with a reference to one of my former students who was then a researcher for the Centre for European Reform, Clara Marina O'Donnell, who died very tragically, very early. And when she was working in Cambridge, her MPhil thesis was on the EU's relations with Ukraine. And she was writing what I insisted was about a dialogue of the deaf. She kept insisting it was a deaf dialogue. So referring and deferring to Clara, I would like to suggest this afternoon that we are in a very dangerous position at the moment where actually what we have between the EU27 and the UK is increasingly a deaf dialogue. That the United Kingdom still seems to be negotiating from a position of assuming that if we say often enough what we want, even if what we want might change from day to day, then ultimately people will give it to us. And I think that is fundamentally flawed, but I haven't yet heard any evidence to suggest that David Davis is doing much beyond that. Uh, now, the last time I was in a room with the Adenauer Stiftung, we were being told quite rigorously that no, this isn't true and negotiations are going rather well. But it was under the Chatham House rules, so I can't tell you who said that. Um, <laughs> Put it, put it this way, it wasn't anyone on the payroll of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung. But we are in a very odd situation where recently there was a suggestion that the UK is going to end up somewhere like Ukraine. And yet most of the time we talk about you know, the Canadian model, the Norway model, as Paul mentioned earlier, or possibly Turkey just being in a customs union. None of these are things that the UK thinks they want, none of them are necessarily on offer, but we are in a very odd position where it's not quite clear that any of us, EU27 or the UK, will get what we want. Nor are we going to get what is in the best interests of the EU or the United Kingdom. And here I will briefly channel the hardline Brexiteers, because they will say quite categorically, well, it is clearly in everybody's interests, the EU27 and the UK, to understand that our security needs, our security interests, remain the same the day we leave. Therefore, nothing needs to change, they would say. And at one level, what they're saying makes perfect sense, that the security challenges won't be any different the day we leave. The United Kingdom's links to the European Union, unless we dig up or block off the Channel Tunnel, don't remain, they don't change. And if anything, since the vote to leave the European Union, the clarity with which we see European security and defence interests versus those of, for example, the United States, perhaps become a little bit clearer. And so, moving from the hard Brexit line to the line of the Prime Minister, now obviously we don't really know whether she's in favour of hard Brexit, soft Brexit, or whatever sort of Brexit, but she has very clearly said on many occasions that we're not leaving Europe, we're only leaving the EU. 
and therefore we want to have security and defence relations as close as possible to the EU. And the line that we've had from the government in the last year has been far more positive about European defence than it has been about European defence for any time over the last 50 years. So we've got this paradox at the time the United Kingdom is seeking to leave the European Union, we have suddenly started to say, but actually we think we do need to be part of the security relations and maybe European defence wouldn't be a bad thing. But we have got the reality of the view put forward by the Commission so far. But as Sophia said, even if the other member states say at times, hang on, did we authorise the Commission to say that? Essentially, the Commission is doing what the 27 want them to do. And that is to say that the European Union is an integrated whole. And if a country leaves, it can't have the benefits of membership. And that includes on security and defence. However much it might be in everybody's interests to have ongoing security and defence relationships very much on the same basis as they are at present. And I think this is one of the biggest difficulties for the negotiations and for the likely outcome, that in an ideal world, even if the United Kingdom leaves the European Union, to be part still of foreign security and defence cooperation would be in the interests of all 28. It is very different from the sort of trade regulations that certain people decided they didn't want to be part of. And yet, the chances of it actually happening are slim to non-existent. And here, I think the Norwegian case is very important, that the Norwegians do participate in EU missions, but they don't have any say. And again, the British Brexit position is, but Norway's a bit different. We're so much bigger than Norway. We're so much more important than Norway. The EU will change. They'll feel different. They will actually say Britain can have a seat at the table. But this is where the dialogue of the deaf comes back in. There is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that the EU27 think that it would be desirable to go back on their position that the UK is choosing to leave, and that's fine. They will respect that but we can't have a seat at the table of any of the institutions. And I think Sophia's points about Galileo are really important because the UK has tended to assume that we can make a stance and somehow people will listen. But ultimately, even if it might be in the EU's interest to let us participate, to keep us involved, that may well not be what's going to happen. And I think we have a situation where there could be constructive negotiations, but so far we haven't had any leadership from Her Majesty's Government. There is no sense in which there is a constructive set of proposals that might lead us to this sort of outcome that would be mutually beneficial. So that if we thought leaving the European Union was a bad thing in general, the problem is it's likely to be even worse in this particular sphere of security and defence policy. And finally, on the defence industrial base, here again we see, I'm not going to channel the levers, I'm going to say just how wrong they were. Because during the referendum, the levers kept standing up to say, well, 
it's all project fear, the idea that businesses will pull out. They're not going to do that because it's so important that we make the wings of planes in the United Kingdom, and that's going to carry on being important. So they're still going to want to cooperate. Well, of course not. You can make wings of planes in other places. And the fact that the UK appears not to want to be part of the customs union renders really difficult managing the supply chains. And this is something that the levers who seem to pride themselves on being concerned about international trade seem to misunderstand the nature of 21st century business, that the supply chains are so integrated that parts, components for military equipment will be going back and forth across borders. The time and the expense of dealing with that with a country that's outside of the customs union are prohibitive. And the Airbus announcement today is just indicative of that. So I think the idea that we can somehow still be a major defence player in terms of defence equipment is going to be damaged as well. So not only are we not going to have a seat at the table, we're going to find it rather harder to run some of our businesses. And while the UK will still want to export military equipment and will still be able to do that to third countries, a lot of what has been, ex been anticipated and predicted in terms of business models, I think, will be increasingly challenged. So, sadly, I don't think I'm the positive link in this um, panel today. I think the UK, as Sophia said, still has a lot of lessons to learn, and so far, we don't appear to be learning them. <coughs> Julie, thank you very much indeed for those uh, rather sobering uh, comments. Uh, our next and final speaker is Corrie Shackett, who uh, be uh, recently became the Deputy Director General at IISS. Uh, Corrie, as some of you will know, I've certainly known for some time, uh, uh, a strong Republican uh, in the United States and, and served in the last uh, Republican administration. But I think it's fair to say she's not an enthusiastic supporter of the current Republican president. Correct me if I'm wrong, Corrie. And um, I'm not sure she realized uh, what she was doing, though, in swapping the travails of uh, President Trump for, for our own <laughs> local difficulties here. Uh, but I'm pleased to say that IISS produced an excellent study uh, on this subject uh, just recently, which I'm sure Corrie will uh, also mention. Corrie, very interested to hear uh, an American and IISS double S perspective on these issues. Um, so thank you, Malcolm. I am delighted to be part of the 20th anniversary celebrations of the Center for European Reform, a think tank that is such a magnificent, small punch above its weight, multilateral. It's what Britain ought to be in the international order, and I think uh, aspires to be. But Charles, <laughs> let me put you on warning that if it were possible for my institution to steal Sophia Besch from you, I would do it in a New York minute, because she's the best defense analyst around. Uh, that's the end of the uplifting, optimistic part of my talk. <laughs> you go on a bit longer. <laughs> well, no, can I just add on this CER business? I used to run the European program at Chatham House, and it was almost impossible to do any fundraising because CER had always got in there first. So congratulations, Charles. And deservedly so, deservedly so. So I want to start off by picking up Malcolm's 
assertion, which I seems to me better phrased as a question than as an assertion, which is that the EU is more interested in defense as a result of Brexit. That is not clear to me. It looks to me like the activity that the European Union has gotten underway on defense policy is um, an easy way to show you care about something without actually doing anything. And the rebuttal to that should be the $13 billion, right? Um, except, except for the fact that everything Sophia said about what the EU is doing on defense policy was about writing regulations. It wasn't about what's the EU trying to do in the world? Uh, how are we going to manage securing ourselves with a United States that is increasingly a free radical in the international order um, and a, a European Union defense in which 80% of the spending for uh, European defense comes from non-EU members, from Britain and the United States, in a NATO context, as Jens Stoltenberg said here in London a day or so ago. Um, and and so, so my first fear is, does this actually mean Europe's more serious on defense? I, I, am, I remain intensely skeptical of that, because what I have not, what I have heard is, we'll shovel some money and we'll talk about Galileo without Britain. What I have not heard is, uh, wow, Russia invaded Crimea has come up with asymmetric innovations that chip away at the security of our societies. Anybody care to guess how much European defense spending has gone up since the Russian invasion of Crimea? 4%. It has gone up 4% since Russia invaded Crimea. Not 4% of GDP now. <laughs> Russia commits the first violation violent crossing and possession of territory of a European country since 1945, and European countries increased their defense spending by 4%. So defense spending isn't the only metric, I, but, but I don't see commitment, I don't see strategy, I don't see the kind of terror that every good strategist should always have, that things are gonna go bad and a trap door is <laughs> gonna open underneath you and how are you gonna handle this? So my second depressing point though is that it's not clear to me Britain's any more serious than the rest of Europe is. What I thought I heard when the prime minister, so, so the parallel stories of, of the prime minister's golden boy, the chief whip becoming defense secretary and pulling defense out of the overall uh, organization and strategic reconsideration because, because, because it's the big dog in the room and we're gonna hit the prime minister up for 20 billion bucks to close this gap between what we say we wanna do in the world and what we're doing. That narrative is running on a parallel with the Prime Minister committing an additional $20 billion, which is a suspiciously round similar number. Pounds. Excuse me, 20 billion pounds to, to, the, <laughs> to, to the NHS. 
And everything I think I hear the Prime Minister saying is not about, wow, the world's a dangerous place and they're not going to let us in Galileo. We, we had better think about strategic autonomy in a very serious way. Um, so, so I think there's cause for concern about where Britain is headed on this. I do have a couple of pieces of good news, and France provides them. One is that at the, at the IISS big meeting of defense ministers in Singapore, which had a very anti-Chinese undercurrent to it, the American Secretary of Defense not only uh, spent a lot of sale on China being untrustworthy because Prime Minister Xi had stood in the Rose Garden of the White House in 2015 and promised us they were not militarizing islands in the South China Sea, which they are clearly doing. Now, the Secretary of Defense took an interesting tack on the untrustworthiness of China as an economic lender and as a partner for long-term infrastructure programs. Um, and, and the British and defense and British, German, and defense ministers all stood up, and the German defense minister talked about Germany's future in a united Europe, and the French and British defense ministers railed on about China and the South China Sea. At the same time, British and French ships were uh, doing a freedom of navigation operation. Uh, in the South China Sea. It was one of those beautiful, elegant, wow, people can do this right, I wish my government could, <laughs> that at the time the defense ministers were up sending the message, Britain and France's forces were out there bringing the message home to everyone. Looks to me like Britain's best possibility at this moment is Charles de Gaulle's Directorate of Three, which Right, because it's not at all clear to me France believes in European defense, um, as France has a burden-sharing problem in the EU in the same way Britain has a burden-sharing problem in the EU, and the United States has a burden-sharing problem in NATO. And as I listen to the French president, it sounds to me like the European Union's activity is a wedding cake atop which uh, the tricolor is flown. Um, it's not clear to me that's where other European countries are going to want to go, and so that gives a lot of incentives for Britain and France for bilateral cooperation. Mm. The other thing that I would say about uh, Britain at this time, as Brexit advances, is that it looks to me like a lot of the most interesting opportunities, including opportunities that May government sees for itself, aren't in Europe. I thought it was a masterstroke that when challenged on inclusion in Galileo, uh, the May government rallied the Canadians and Australians, two countries really good at this challenge, to think about the possibility of creating an independent system, a system independent from the American GPS system and independent from Galileo. That struck me as a really smart move, both for giving Britain a platform to, to talk about global Britain in a way that doesn't sound creepy, um, and is an insurance <laughs> policy against the United States becoming an unreliable ally, and does what Britain's actually genuinely brilliant at, 
which is thinking how can we work multilaterally to get the economy of scale among like-minded countries. Um, that's what Britain's good at. It looks to me like the May government's doing that in a smart way operationally with the French in the South China Sea, uh, technically and programmatically with the Canadians and the Australians about space. Um, in trade policy, floating the suggestion of joining NAFTA and TPP, I hope they pull it off, because first of all, it will sustain those two important free trade platforms until, inshallah, my country comes to its senses. Um, but also, that's smart multilateralism. Britain is a Pacific country, and so why shouldn't they be a participation? Why shouldn't they participate in that? Um, so I think the question for Britain, if Europe continues, if the European Union continues to think about defense policy in an exclusionary sense is not do we have a seat at the table in the EU, but what tables does Britain want to have a seat at? Thank you very much indeed, Corey. I think it sometimes takes an outsider to get the Brits uh, out yes. of their malaise mm -hmm. and make us uh, look at uh, our global role in perhaps a rather new uh, way which is uh, not so much infected by our uh, uh, neuralgia about uh, the, the legacy of empire. So that's very, very interesting indeed. Uh, of course, if Mexico also leaves NAFTA, then uh, NAFTA will become a Commonwealth uh, organization and, and we can perhaps, <laughs> we can bring in the Australians as well. Uh, so we've got plenty of time for questions, I think uh, up to 40 minutes. Uh, <coughs> if you'd like to raise your hand uh, and I will bring you in one by one. And I, don't, I won't get everybody to answer every question, but we'll see how we go, please. Uh, I think we've got a microphone. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hello, my name's Elwyn Jones. Um, I hear from time to time that the UK has these special skills which Europe wants, such as in the defence industry. Paul, I think, mentioned it and also so on. Now, I've been an engineer all my life and I've met people, not really practising, but I've been meeting people in the industry around Europe and in the UK. And I'm afraid whenever I meet somebody in the UK, I think, huh? Do you really know your subject? I meet people in Europe, often UK people working in Europe, and I think, oh, I've learned something from you. And I wonder, do you have any evidence of the intellectual property or skills that we have that Europe really needs? I'm intent to believe a little bit more along Julie's line that you can make wings anywhere. <laughs> Thanks. Great question. Who'd like to tackle that? So, wait, uh, one at a time. So, you can argue you can make things anywhere. This is true. Do we have special skills? Probably not. I mean, it's that you can, you can develop skills in any places. But we, we have, um, in certain areas, I would argue in producing complex aircraft, whether those are passenger jets, propulsion systems, or indeed in some cases cars, there is a tacit set of skills and knowledge and understanding that enables you to bring together incredibly complex uh, uh, systems and interdependencies in an efficient way. And the UK has those skills because we are from the dawn of motoring or the dawn of aircraft producing, we have done those. So if you look at, um, China has masses of money, 
It has a hugely educated population. It you know, regularly steals intellectual property from various parts of the world. But it, to date, has not produced a viable airliner. Okay, it's got some passable fast jets, but even so, I think the best would say that their capabilities are still short. So they can and will eventually, but it will take them you know, perhaps another couple of generations to do it. So, but we can do it. And similarly, if you look in the commercial sphere, Boeing on the 787 decided that it would take you know, big bucks from a range of different countries, including Japan and others, because you, know, you needed to offset the cost of the program. Those have inbuilt into that program huge additional costs because it turned out that they couldn't produce to time and budget in quite the way that others have. And one of the reasons why in the civil area that the fact that we make all the wings for the Airbus is because we're bloody good at it. You know, you're not, that is something that is not... It is doable, but not without very, very significant time and cost. So we do have a set of skills and capabilities in the UK that is not easy, but easily replicable. Sorry. So I want to come at your question from uh, a slant direction, uh, which is that flight instructors are fond of saying that with enough bananas you can teach any monkey to fly. Um, and the same is true even of precision manufacturing, right? You could teach people how to do that. You have to pick the right people. You have to train them well. Um, but guess what? The revolution is nigh, my friends. Manufacturing is not going to be done by people. It's going to be done by machines driven by algorithms. You know what, brilliant, what Britain is brilliant at better than anybody in the world, including my own sweet, enormous country? intellectual creativity and development. This country, this teeny little island, has th three of the 10 best universities in the entire world. It's an enormous magnet for talented people, and talented people, if you get a, a large enough cohort of them, do amazing world-changing things. That's what, if I were sitting in continental Europe, I would be worried about Britain leaving the European Union for. Sophia? Uh, maybe just briefly, because uh, Corey and Paul have really, have really answered the question, I think, how does this feed into negotiations is an interesting question to ask. Mm -hmm. How does it feed into how other member states look at the UK? And of course, on the short term, you'd think clearly they're losing something. So look at Galileo. They're losing the UK's expertise, the industrial expertise, and just the experience in building uh, the satellite receivers and uh, things like that. They are losing out. Galileo is going to be delayed. But they also see an opportunity there because they know that in the long term that the expertise, they're going to have to build it up. And that, they think, might strengthen the European industrial system, might strengthen their national industries as well. So I think there are two sides to this in the negotiation. Thanks for listening to the CEA podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CEA underscore EU.